let me add my welcome uh, to those that you've uh, already received. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Rich. I'm the pastor here, and I'm going to be uh, helping us think through these verses that Nathan's just read. Um, with that in mind, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we uh, come to you now as we approach this new, um, a new series and back into the book of Luke. Father God, please would you show us Jesus and show us what it means to follow him. And in his name we pray. Amen. I made, <coughs> excuse me, I made the rather bold step this year. I moved back to a paper diary. Ooh, yeah, ooh. I've, um, the, one of the reasons why I've done so is that I've increasingly, looking back over last year, felt my, the, the draws on my time, my energy, my focus, drawn in, in lots of different ways. And uh, the idea behind the paper diary is really to have somewhere I can just write things down and to try and make sense of those different directions. But life does that, doesn't it? Life pulls us in multiple different directions. And I think really the further we go on through life, the more different directions we feel pulled, more things vie for our time and attention and our energy. And it is all too easy for Jesus to slip down on that priority list. It is all too easy for these other things that are vying for our focus to take precedence and priority over him. We're going to see today that Jesus says, no, following me is to be priority number one. And he's going to say some very shocking things that might surprise us when first, at first we hear them. But he's also going to tell us why it is that following him should be the priority and why that is such a good thing. We're rejoining the book of Luke, as Will's explained. Uh, the first half of the book really is focused on who Jesus is, the, the Saviour. We went right back, even before the beginning, to see uh, the events surrounding his birth. We saw the beginning of his ministry where he gave his manifesto, what he was all about. He came to preach good news. And then we started to see him work out his ministry. And we left Luke sometime last year. Uh, we left Luke um, at the end of chap- in the middle of chapter 9, twice having told his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to be rejected and betrayed, he was going to be killed and three days later rise again. And now in this section of the book of Luke, Jesus starts to prepare his disciples for life without him. He's teaching them what it means to be his disciples, what that actually looks like. And as I said, that's where we begin today. We are covering quite a big chunk, aren't you? You probably felt that as Nathan read it. But but these sections, these uh, scenes that we're looking at are, are are linked around this theme of discipleship, of following Jesus. Every scene shows us what it means to follow him. It does so, first of all, primarily by showing us Jesus himself. As we see him, then we know better what it means to follow him. And I've really gone for kind of least catchy titles of the sermon points I've ever, I've ever gone for. Okay, so they're very clunky, but I hope that the points that are on your sheets there help us see what Jesus was about and therefore what it looks like to follow him. 
And the first one there is Jesus came to save, so prioritize him. Jesus came to save, prioritize him. So Jesus came to save. I said that twice in chapter 9, verse 22, verse 44. Jesus said he's come to die. But then 951 sees the start of this new section of the book. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So although we're not even halfway through the book, we are entering into Jesus' final days. The whole book from here on in sees Jesus on this road to Jerusalem, on the road to his death. And it starts with this description there in verse 51, that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's adopting Old Testament language for being resolved or being committed to. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He resolved to go there. He committed to do so. Jesus came on a mission. He wasn't making it up as he went along, thinking, what should I do next? Jesus came with that specific task to bring salvation. And to bring that salvation by dying, giving up his own life. And nothing could shake Jesus from it. Nothing could distract him. Nothing could pull him away from it. We're still in that season, aren't we, of New Year's resolutions? I don't know, have you, do you make any res, New Year's resolutions? And if so, dare I ask, how are they going? I was interested to re, uh, read of a study this week. So 2000, uh, 2021, um, three UK universities and two Australian universities conducted research into New Year's resolutions. And they discovered that the majority of New Year's resolutions failed by the 17th or 18th of January. So if you're still going, you're doing well. If you're still going next Sunday, you're doing better than most people. Well done. I find it hugely comforting to know that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That nothing would stop him from doing so. Nothing would stop him on his mission to save. And as he was like then, so he is like today. And so, Jesus, with his disciples, set off for Jerusalem. Now, to get from Galilee, where the majority of Jesus' ministry has happened so far, in the south, to Jerusalem in the north, would take them through the, areas, um, the area of the Samaritans. Now, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other much, and both sides would really be surprised to see that Jesus was taking the time to try and bring the good news to them as well. But he did. As they were traveling, he sent his disciples on to, to get the people ready for his arrival. But, verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set to Jerusalem. The Samaritans didn't receive him because they didn't like the fact that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, that he was on his way to die. They didn't like it. The Samaritans didn't like it. And then the disciples, specifically James and John, they didn't like that the Samaritans didn't like it. And not for nothing were they nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. Verse 54. 
And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Woof. But actually, that's not entirely out of nowhere. I'd never noticed this before. But in two kings, the beginning of two kings, to prove that he really was a prophet of the Lord, Elijah called down fire from heaven onto Samaritans to prove who he was. And maybe James and John, they thought, well, Jesus is going to want to do likewise. But Jesus' response is clear. He rebukes the disciples and they move on. And the point of this is, is that the reason why is because Jesus came to save, not to judge and destroy. Jesus came, as it were, to step under the fire of God's judgment on the cross, taking it himself to save. He came to step under the fire of God's judgment, not to dish it out. Now, yes, when Jesus returns, when he comes a second time, he will indeed judge everyone who's ever lived. And he will bring about the righteous consequences of, of that judgment. But when he came that first time, he came to save. And still today, before Jesus returns, it, Jesus is still in the business of saving people. Today is the day of salvation. And that means you. If you haven't yet come to Jesus, but you're looking into him and you're hearing these things about him being the saviour, now is the day of salvation. Come to him and trust in him. That you'll be safe on that day when he returns. Equally, if you are, as a Christian, if you're seeking to reach out to others, those around you, be patient with people's rejection. Don't be too quick to write people off. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus was committed. He was resolute in his saving purpose. And then he calls his disciples to that same level of commitment. Because further along the road, Jesus has three encounters with three different people. Two of them say, I will follow you, Jesus. The one in the middle, Jesus says to them, follow me. And it seems like these three people all had every intention of following Jesus. And yet, Jesus challenges them all. So firstly, the first one boldly said, verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And that's great. That's a brilliant thing, isn't it? He's recognized that to follow Jesus is going to be commitment to him and going to follow him. But where have we just seen that Jesus is going? We've just seen that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be rejected and killed. Or to put it inside a different language, in verse 58, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus left heaven to bring salvation. He left everything. He had nothing. We saw that at Christmas, didn't we? When Jesus came, there was no room for him. 
We saw that just now with the Samaritans who didn't receive him, wouldn't even give him a bed for the night. No, the road for Jesus was going to be difficult. It was going to be painful. It was going to be costly. And the road for his disciples, Jesus is saying, is going to be the same. Jesus calls his disciples to give up everything for him. Now this doesn't mean that we can't buy a flat or a house, but it does mean that we must never let earthly things get in the way of true discipleship. Is there something that is more important to you? It could be a property. It could be the desire to try and buy a property, to bring that um, security. It could be the idea of doing up a property. Maybe it's something else entirely. Maybe it's a relationship or a job or a hobby. Jesus calls his disciples to give up everything for him. The second person hesitates, verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. That's a reasonable request, isn't it? The Bible indeed places a lot of emphasis on the importance of our responsibilities to our families, which might make what Jesus says in verse 30 a bit surprising to us, in verse 60. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I'll leave it to you. Over coffee, you can chat to people about what, they, what, Jesus, what you think Jesus meant by having the dead bury their own bed, dead, dead bury their own deads. But for now, I just want to simply note, you see what the, the man said? He said, first, let me go and bury my father. Think of that word, first, we see his true priority. And even such a right concern as burying a father is dwarfed by the priority of following Jesus. Jesus is to take priority over our earthly families. Now, much, if not most, of our familial responsibilities fit very harmoniously with following Jesus. For many of us, the call to proclaim the kingdom, well, our families are a great place for us to start. But when there is a clash, between our earthly families and following Jesus, who will you prioritize? When your parents perhaps don't like your priorities, or when your siblings think you're stupid, who are we going to prioritize? And I know for a number of people in church family that prioritizing Jesus has led to really painful family tensions to encourage you that this is the path. That that is what Jesus calls us to. The third person seeks to delay, verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And it seems that Jesus recognizes in this man a desire to cling to his old life. Maybe he knew that actually if this man went back to say goodbye, he would never leave again. But Jesus says, verse 62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I don't know if you drive, but 
that you're driving along and, and you check your, your blind spot before you maybe pull out the lane and it's a bit dark or something, so you can't really see and you're kind of peering back and you turn back and you realise actually you've dragged the whole car over a little bit while you've been looking over your shoulder. That's a modern day example, I think, of what Jesus is saying um, there about the plough. You know, if you're ploughing a field those days, if you're, you're trying to plough the, the ground in a straight line, but if you spend the whole time looking back over your shoulder, your line's going to be really wonky. And Jesus is saying, look, constantly looking back to your old way of life will make it very hard for you to keep on track. Following Jesus requires focus. And again, is there something in your life perhaps that you're looking back to from before you became a Christian? Some draw, some pull, some, something that you, you still, you're, you're trying to leave behind, but it's hard. Well, looking back is going to make following Jesus really difficult. These three interactions, Jesus explains, look, following me is priority. He was committed to save, and so he calls his disciples to be committed to him. Secondly, uh, Jesus cares for the lost, and therefore we are to be urgent in our outreach. Jesus was committed to go to the cross, committed to save people. But interesting, he didn't just go. He didn't just write, I'm off to Jerusalem and just march straight there and ignore everything and everyone on the way. No, every encounter that Jesus had on the road from there to Jerusalem, he sought to get out the message that the kingdom of God had come, that now was the day of salvation. He cared for the lost. And so... And he sends out these 72 messengers to again get the people ready for his arrival. And he sent them out in pairs and he gave them instructions about what they were to take and not to take and uh, he prepared them for the responses they were going to receive. But again, Jesus cared about these people that he met along the way. Jesus came again not to, uh, Jesus came to save, not to judge. But as he does so, he does lovingly warn those he comes across of the dire consequences of not following him. You see that most clearly, perhaps in verse 13 to 15, there where he, he warns the cities that he's been ministering in. And he expresses these warnings in woes. Woes are like a deep cry of sadness, of, of regret, of dismay. And what Jesus does in these verses is compare these cities that he's been ministering in to the Old Testament examples of wicked cities. And therefore, in this comparison, he makes some shocking statements. So verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! That's where he's been. That's where he's been ministering. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, those are Old Testament cities of great wickedness, if, if I'd done all those works in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago with sackcloth and ashes. Even those worst of cities, if they'd seen what you'd seen, they would have repented. How wicked you are. He goes on, verse 14, but it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Jesus cares for the lost. He, he cared for those he came across on the road to Jerusalem, and he cared enough to give these loving warnings how important it is to receive Jesus. And that care, again, is to be echoed in his disciples. 
disciples first off, they're, they're told two things. That um, they're told to, to pray and to go. So, so yes, the disciples are warned of rejection, but at the beginning they're encouraged to actually see that there is this abundant harvest. There is this huge crop of people who would come to Jesus and accept him, receive him. So verse 2, chapter 10, verse 2. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. To pray for more workers as it's abundant crop, therefore pray that people would respond, receive Jesus, start following him and join in this work. They're told to pray earnestly. And they're told to go. That's what it says in verse 3. Go your way. And they're given instructions as to how they are to do so. Now it is really important for us to note that what we find here is not an instruction manual for modern day mission. Okay, this is not a step-by-step guide for us for how we should uh, conduct our lives. These were specific instructions to the disciples, or 72 disciples then. But the principles that lie behind those instructions do apply for us to us. And I think the main principle there is that of urgency. Urgency. The work they're involved with was so important that it is to be treated urgently. For them... That meant not taking unnecessary things or stopping to chat along the way. So verse 4, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Don't be burdened down by a massive suitcase. Don't stop to catch up with old buddies you meet along the way. That's what it meant for them. For us, it might mean taking steps to stop being so manically busy in life so that we can have a chance to reflect on the, what our mission should be with the people that we're coming across. For them, it meant uh, if, if they weren't received and welcome, they were to shake the dust off their sandals and move on to the next town. For us, it may mean that we perhaps prioritize meeting up with new friends who've shown an interest in Christian things, rather than really old and good friends you've had those gospel conversations with. And they've shut you down and said, let's not talk about this anymore. Our urgency is to get across the message that with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom, God's kingdom has come. Did you see that's what Jesus wants all the the people to know, whether they actually receive the disciples. So in verse 9, if they do receive the disciples and they're ministering there, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you even if the people reject you completely. Verse 11, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Our urgent work is to spread the message of the, that Jesus is the saving king. And we're to be urgent in that work. That's the the meaning, the importance of those encounters that we have in your workplace and with your neighbours and you're standing by your child's football pitch when they're doing their clubs and things like that. There's an urgency 
for serving the Lord Jesus that echoes his own. And then thirdly and finally, Jesus rejoices in salvation and therefore we should too. Jesus came to save. We've seen that. He cared about the lost. He wanted them to be saved. And salvation brings him great joy. Verse 17 to 20 that we'll look at more closely in a second. It sees the 72 who've been sent out returning to him. And they return with great joy. And then in verse 21, we find Jesus rejoicing too. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now the word for what Jesus is doing there is, is the strongest of the Bible's words for rejoicing. It, it's stronger than what we find the disciples doing in the verses just before. He was full of joy, ecstasy, perfect joy. And what caused this joy for Jesus? That was the saving work of his Father. Particularly the sovereign saving work of the Father. He was rejoicing that God gives salvation to the the little children, the insignificant, while hiding it from the wise and and understanding. Now we can find God's sovereignty and salvation confusing. You may even find it concerning. But as, we, as you wrestle and grapple with what God's Word teaches on this subject, please do keep in mind what we see here, that God's sovereignty and salvation caused Jesus great joy. It is a good thing to be rejoiced in. Jesus rejoiced in salvation, and our chief joy too is to be found in salvation. So so look back at the disciples in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Their first mission trip was an amazing success. The authority that Jesus had given them, commissioned them with, meant that they were able to heal and to cast out demons. And this, uh, though unseen by them, sent shockwaves through the unseen world. That's what verse um, 18 is all about. The disciples were understandably delighted and and joyful over what had, had happened. But Jesus is careful to redirect their joy. Yes, they have been privileged, but verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but... Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here is to be their ultimate joy. Their names are written in heaven. It is a tremendous blessing. It was for them and is for us today a tremendous blessing to see the Lord work through you. But it is an even greater blessing to be saved by him 
to enter a relationship with him which is going to be fully realized and enjoyed forever in heaven. There is a real risk for Christians who are really busy and active in serving Jesus that our identity and therefore our joy are caught up in our ministry. But that is only ultimately going to end in despair. We have a better source for our joy than, the, than what we're doing. It is our relationship with Jesus. Whatever happens in the ministry you're involved with, never lose sight of the fact that any success we receive is because the Lord has worked it. And find our joy in the fact, not, not of our ministry, but in our salvation. And this is what makes following Jesus so worthwhile, so important. This is where it flows from of having been saved by him, having joy in that salvation, joy in that relationship now, joy in the fact that we can be sure that there is this future joy that will last forever as well. Having been saved by him, we are now empowered to live, to follow him, and to serve him. That's where the, the power for our following of him comes from. That's what enables us with this huge call and, and costly and priority and urgency. What helps us keep going is this joy. Christianity is about following Jesus. When Jesus came, he came and he set his face to Jerusalem. He was ultimately committed to save. He came to die for the lost. And that was his highest joy. And as we follow in his footsteps, we too are called to, to prioritize him and to serve him with that same commitment and urgency. And as we do so, finding our joy in that salvation that he brought. Let's pray that we would indeed do that. Father, we do indeed rejoice that our names are in heaven, written in heaven. We thank you that your children's salvation was secured by Jesus when he came. Thank you that he set his face to Jerusalem and laid down his life that we would be safe from your judgment. Please would we find our ultimate joy there in our relationship with him, with our relationship with you. And would that joy overflow into lives that are committed, totally committed to Jesus and prioritizing him. Please we pray that you would work that all in, in us all. In Jesus' name.